Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who met his wife while training for the 400 meters in Seattle and is eating gluten-free whilst lusting after bread, Dave Denniston. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping doctors like you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, I have the pleasure of having two guests with me that are a team that has gotten into all kinds of real estate. As you guys know, I have loved enjoying my journey in land flipping, and I'm starting to really dip my toes into self-storage. So these folks have done all kinds of real estate of all sorts, entrepreneurs to the bone. Please help me welcome Jeremy and Jennifer Perkins. Welcome, guys. Thank you, Dave. We're glad to be here. Hey, thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Well, you guys, um, we got connected through um, a good friend, Alicia, and she was saying, you got to talk to these guys. They, they're doing the self-storage thing. I know you're getting into the self-storage and you guys have uh, had quite the journey. Walk me through kind of growing up a bit and, and experience maybe you had in real estate when you were young. Tell us about all that. Yeah. So for me, um, I didn't have any experience with real estate growing up. I read a book. Uh, I think it was in 2006 and it was, you know, Robert Kiyosaki book. And that was my first taste of real estate investing. And so I studied real estate investing for about a decade um, before I actually started uh, getting into any kind of investing. And then my first experience with investing was like house hacking, flipping that sort of thing. But at the same time, I was working on uh, the development of our self-storage facility that we have. And of course, development is a long, longer play than acquisition. So that uh, took a while to get up and going. And and Jeremy and I worked together on several other projects during that time. And then also after that, and I'll let Jeremy share a little bit more about his background and what else we do. Yeah, so um, just a quick overview of my background. I guess I got my start in real estate back in 06, just buying my first house to live in. Uh, was always, I've been in construction since high school and just kind of fixed up my own residence and sold it, made a profit and thought um, I could do something more with this other than just, you know, move around. And so kind of pursued a career in construction and started you know, um, fixing up another, well, actually the second house that I fixed up was in 2008 and then the market crashed. And then I just started doing construction for other people. So I started doing construction for a lot of, uh, house flippers and investors building houses and things like that. And then eventually we started doing it ourselves. And I think that's where Jennifer picked up was you know, where we started flipping houses, building houses, started building self-storage and, uh, and that's where we are now. So walk me through your guys's story a little bit. So Jeremy, you, you were getting into the real estate, pretty young, buying a house and, and getting a little bit of flips and the market crash. When did y'all meet? 
during this? Jeremy and I so, met in 2011. <clears throat> I lived in Germany for about five and a half years. And um, just almost immediately after I moved back here, even though we grew up in the same town, we didn't actually know each other, but we met in 2011 and just, you know, clicked pretty instantly. And we've, you know, had a relationship since then. And, you know, Jeremy has always been self-employed. I was employed until we opened the storage facility. And that's when I quit my job and started full-time in real estate. Nice, nice. So Jeremy, I'm, I'm curious when you think back to the 08 crisis and sounds like you were, you were single at the time. Um, what was that like for you going, going through that? Sounds like it was pretty tumultuous for you where you had to start working for, for someone else doing construction for a bit. Well, um, so I was, my original house in 2006 was basically a house hack and so I fixed it up, sold it, made some money, did it again. Fortunately, I was living there. Um, I only wanted to live there for a year. So I got an interest only Fannie Mae loan that ballooned and all that crap. Um, so when the market tanked in 2008, uh, obviously house values went down. So I ended up living in the house or staying in the house. As a matter of fact, I still own the house today. So I held on to that. Um, I did go and work for other people, you know, um, I started, I built pools for a while. I started remodeling houses for other investors, you know, just being the general contractor for, um, different types of people and really got a good experience in investing in that manner, because I saw a lot of the things that, you know, were profitable. And then I saw a lot of mistakes that people made and, through that process, you know, I was fortunate enough to be getting paid to do it. So that was actually a really good experience for me. Um, and then like Jennifer said, uh, you know, once we got married and serious about doing this thing together and she quit her job, you know, we went full time. We both went full time, just doing investments for ourselves. Um, we'll still do a custom house here and there for other people, but Mainly we're doing, we're just doing construction projects and investment projects for our own companies. Um, and that's where we're at now. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I think about a lot of our, our audience here that listens to this podcast and probably half of the audience are physicians that are just getting, getting started in their career. Maybe they're only making like 60 grand a year as residents or fellows and then all of a sudden they make this big jump in income to where now they're making 200 or 300 or 400 or $500,000 a year. And they're juggling student loans and um, getting started in practice and buying their first house and going through this big transition time with your guys' experience. And Jennifer, you got a little bit later into the game, it sounds like, than Jeremy did. If, if you were a physician in that kind of spot, you know, doing all the different kinds of real estate you've done, how would you get started today? Uh, Yeah. If I was in that position and it's funny, I always, I actually wanted to be a doctor growing up and not because, okay, I do love helping people, but it wasn't because I wanted to, you know, cure illness and that sort of thing. I wanted to be wealthy. 
And I knew that people, you know, doctors, lawyers, professional specialists were the wealthy people. I didn't grow up in a wealthy family and, um, you know, it, it just didn't work out for me. I ended up, I went to college. I did get a master's in business, but, you know, I didn't go in that path. And I'm grateful because I would have been stuck in that path. You know, you have to keep working uh, to keep earning that type of income. And as you, when you have that type of income, you end up getting expenses to go along with it, the house and the car and the boat and um, things that make you have to keep up with the income. And so I just was kind of reflecting on that as you were talking about that, because I haven't been on a podcast specifically for that type of audience. Um, But I have met other people in that position who are making that income and they're trying to figure out how do I preserve it? How do I do? How do I make more money without working so hard? Mm. Or how do I make this additional money that I had? that I could save, how do I make it grow? Because it's just sitting in a bank account and it's <clears throat> losing value with inflation, you know? So what do I do there? And what I would recommend, and people are all the time asking us about self-storage development. They're like, oh, I know about this piece of land. You know, I think there should be self-storage there. That's a really hard way to get into self-storage. That is how we got into self-storage. It's very difficult and very, uh, lots of reasons that it wouldn't work out. So I would recommend getting educated on self-storage acquisitions, learning how to buy, you know, a 100 door facility in your town. You know, that would be the way that I would recommend to get into it. There's lots of different mentors, podcasts. Um, There's not like a great book I could recommend on self-storage acquisitions, how to learn that. But I would recommend finding uh, a mentorship or mastermind that could teach you how to look at a deal, analyze it, who the lenders are to work with and get into a deal that way. And then maybe in the future, you could find that, uh, you wanted to be more involved in real estate and become qualified as a real estate professional so that you could take the benefits of depreciation, or maybe your spouse could be a real estate professional. So you could take the benefits of depreciation and offset your physician income, that sort of thing. So that would be my suggestion. So do you think, it sounds like you think self-storage would be a great place to start, or do you think maybe single family homes or you know, what, what would be a good starting uh, house hacking? You know, Jeremy did some house hacking. It sounds like when he got started is, is just, just jumping right in. You think a good thing to do into self-storage or is there kind of a ladder, you know, that you kind of work your way into? I think, Uh, sorry, go ahead, Jeremy. That's all right. Well, I was just going to add to what she said that, you know, thinking if I was a a professional making, you know, several hundred thousand dollars a year and a lot of times professionals are, you know, they enjoy what they do or have a passion for what they do, but they need to preserve, as she said, preserve money or put it in a vehicle to grow. A great way for a professional like that is to passively invest, you know, and to learn as well. When you have operators such as Jennifer and myself, you know, not everyone is a general contractor. Not everyone has MBA in business. So Jennifer has MBA in business, I'm a general contractor and we've built from the ground up self-storage facilities. We've built houses from the ground up. We know the game. We know the players in the game. We've got, you know, the connections and subcontractors. 
So if I had it to do over, for example, myself, I had to follow my face a bunch of times in order to figure out what not to do <laughs> and then work with some people. And I thought, man, this is a lot easier to see, you know, their example of what to do than just, you know, trying to figure this thing out on myself. And so now looking back, I'm like, what I really wish I would have done, especially if, if I would have had some money to do it with, I definitely would have should have done that is just passively invest inside someone else's deal and get a good return on my capital, especially if it's just sitting there and be able to see like what's going on and get some experience, you know, without having to spend a whole lot of time and, or having to take all of the risk, you know what I mean? So uh, with, with people that's already done it. I, I want to um, draw back to something you said that really popped out to me. You said you fell on your face a few times. I know I, I've done that in my life. What was that like for you? How did you fall on your face a few times in this journey? Well, I mean, just even from the beginning, you know, getting a, an interest only loan that was going to balloon after a year, like that was highly speculative uh, process that, you know, if the economy tanked, I wasn't in a very good position. Now, the only thing that really hedged me against that was uh, the fact that I lived there, you know, now if I wouldn't have lived there, I would have lost the house. Mm. So, but it still started ballooning on me and it was still kind of a struggle. And then just, you know, learning in as far as like flipping houses or, you know, even, having a construction business in itself, like trial and error, trial and error, doing things the wrong way that cost too much money, doing things the wrong way that cost, you know, warranty issues down the road, doing things that, you know, not asking for prices before, you know, you let people do work and things like that, that end up biting you in the butt, like you name it, I've done it. So it would have been a lot easier from the beginning for me to just watch somebody do it that already had processes and systems in place that already had made those mistakes and learned from them and corrected them. And you know what I mean? Yeah. I guess what they call uh, like stepping on the shoulders of giants, like the easiest way to grow is to step on the shoulders of giants and just walk with the people that's already learned all of this stuff. Like it's so much quicker than trial and error, you know? Absolutely. And that, that being said, you're still going to make mistakes, right? You know, I know, Correct. I yep. know that's true of me. I mean, you help to avoid some things, but uh, you still get in your own way because there's no better, better way to learn than it to hurt your own pocketbook. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not all a curse, I don't guess, because you do learn, you know, the fundamentals um, and they don't go away. It sticks with you on what to do, what not to do, but there is a faster way. And I think, you know, connecting with other people, especially if you're in the position, like in your example of if you're a physician, you're making good money, you've got money parked somewhere. Like why not ride with somebody else that's done it for a while, learn if you even want to do it all yourself. A lot of people would rather just collaborate in general anyway, and, and just work better that way. But why not, you know, have that money making money on its own without the extra effort, unless you just want to make a business out of it. And then, you know, maybe that's your next step. But well, I think from the beginning, it, you know, passive is what I would suggest. And, and Jennifer, I want to go back to something you said earlier that I think is important to point out to folks that I, I know something about, but you, you probably know better than I do. And you were talking about the tax write-offs of depreciation. Can you talk a little bit more about that and kind of what 
defines a real estate professional? Yeah. So <clears throat> I always try to disclaim any kind of advice like this, that I'm not, this is not financial or investment or legal advice, but <laughs> uh, my understanding is a real estate professional is someone that spends 15 or more hours a week working on real estate investing. And so uh, when you are a qualified real estate professional, then you qualify to offset your earned income with, with depreciation. So you take a building, you know, and whatever the purchase price of the building is, then you divide that by a number of years. I, for residential, it's shorter than commercial, but it's about 40 years for commercial. And then you take that amount and you can offset your earned income. So the physician income can be reduced. The taxable amount can be reduced by depreciation if <clears throat> Somebody in that, you know, tax return, one of the other spouse is a uh, real estate professional. Now, it's not that you can't use depreciation. Like if you have rental income, you know, passive income, then you can offset that with depreciation. But, you know, the real winner is when you can offset your earned income with depreciation. Like that's just the real combination. And to take that a step further, if you have a year where you have, a significant gain, you know, maybe you sold an investment property or you just have a lot of income you need to write off. You can do a cost segregation study on your asset, your self-storage facility or rental portfolio or whatever, and use that to, you know, offset that major gain. So there's tons of different tax strategies, but I was just thinking when Jeremy was talking, <clears throat> I kind of wish I would have led with that because, he made such a good point about passive investing. Um, if you hate what you do, then by all means, like spend the time and money and energy learning how to do something different. But if you love what you do as a physician and you just want to figure out how to, you know, preserve and grow your wealth and passive passively investing in other deals is very, very smart. And that's definitely the path of least resistance. You know, there's syndications where people raise money and they need accredited investors, you know, to put money into their deal. There's syndications where for friends and family, where you don't have to be an accredited investor, um, or you could partner with somebody and be the money partner. They're the boots on the ground. They're the sweat e equity. They don't have the money to put into it, but you do. You know, you just make sure that you vet the person and somebody you know, like, and trust. And, and how would you guys go about that? That's one of the biggest um, issues that I have. And over the years, we had different people with different thoughts on how would you vet somebody? So you guys, knowing what you know, how would you vet someone to know that they're a good potential partner for you. Jeremy, you want okay. me to go ahead? I could give you my vetting advice, I guess, or opinion, um, you know, cause we're constantly, we're a general contractor. So we're constantly vetting subcontractors. We have, you know, 40 something trades that we have to supply at any given time. Um, which is very similar to even having to vet, you know, other investors to work with, because it's all about performance. Who's going to perform? Who's going to do what they say they're going to do? Who's going to keep their word? Who's going to, you know, be honest if there's the, one of the main things for me is who's going to be honest if there's a mistake or if there's, you know, a shortcoming that's come up because the quicker we can get ahead of, of you know, 
the negative things, like the quicker we're going to get to the positive things. So even that's important to me, but I think the best way for me to bet somebody is just try to get a hold of their experience and talk to some other people that they've worked with, you know, no matter what, what it is they're doing, if they're leading a syndication on a self-storage facility and I want to passively invest, well, how many syndications have you led? Who have you worked with? How many facilities have you built? Where are the facilities? What, what's the performance of those facilities? What are the numbers? Are are they profitable? Um, You know, all of those things, what banks have you worked with? What references can you give us? Like who, what other professionals can we talk to? I mean, any and all of that to me is relevant in uh, the betting process. Absolutely. Jennifer, any other thoughts from you? Yeah, I agree. I mean, Jeremy covered it really well. And I think there's just so much value in asking for references. Every time I work with somebody that it doesn't work out the way I hoped, I always uh, look back and can blame that I didn't ask around, you know, I didn't ask enough people who had worked with them before. I just trusted them that it was going to work out and then it didn't and I had to eat it. So, you know, asking for references for people that have actually done deals with the, with the people that you want to work with. All good suggestions. Absolutely. And so um, let's, let's talk about the self-storage a little bit. Why Tell us, tell me the story of how you guys decided to get into self-storage with so many different things that you could be doing out there. Yeah, it, for us, it just kind of, we had the land, all right? We had the property and we had to figure out what's the highest and best use for the property. So for most people getting into self-storage, they already know that self-storage is a good cash flowing, resilient asset. And they're trying to find where to do it, where to buy it or where to do it. We had the property and that was just the highest and best use for it. And so if it would have been a grocery store, if that's what we would have discovered was the highest and best use, then we'd be talking about a grocery store. Right <laughs> so, <now. laughs> so, so let's go back then into the land. Then. So how and when did you acquire the land and why? The, so this property was a house, a fixer-upper house on eight acres. And it actually was a farm that as a kid, I would go to um, the property owner I knew. And he was wanting to sell the house and move to Florida. He's, you know, older, retired. And he had put out a for sale by owner sign in the yard and you know, we were interested in it, just didn't have the bandwidth to purchase it. So just kind of went back and forth and ended up getting him to seller finance it for a year and, uh, you know, sold the house that I lived in and paid him, you know, I think it was 10,000 down, got him to seller finance for a year. And then we rezoned the, uh, so that it was a four acre lot and a four acre lot with the house on it. We fixed up the house, rezoned the four acres that was vacant commercial. And then I think it was 10 months after the purchase. And that was in 2017, maybe. Um, we did a cash out refi, took the land, the commercial land out of the loan. And then we owned that land free and clear. So that value of that land, we were able to use as our down payment for the type of loan that we got for the construction of the storage facility. Got it. What was the rezoning like? I mean, I, I, I think of dealing with lots of meetings with the county and just being a royal pain. 
was that? It was horrible. <laughs> I do not recommend it. Now, uh, you, you will be able to add tremendous value by entitling property, especially self-storage, because it is so hard to rezone because uh, you get a lot of what we call NIMBYism, which stands for not in my backyard. Like people want storage and yeah. people use storage, but don't you dare build it anywhere near where they have to look at it because <laughs> um, they're used to seeing storage of the past. Storage of the past is gravel parking and barbed wire fencing and, you know, it's just sketchy looking. Storage of today is not like that. But um, the rezoning process was not fun at all. We had a lot of opposition. Uh, we had never done a development like that. So they could only make assumptions on what it would be like and assume that it was going to be an ugly facility. And so um, we actually did get it passed. Obviously, we have the storage facility. And then when we go for more rezonings and things to that nature, because people see the quality of the product we build, we build very beautiful homes. We build a very beautiful storage. Uh, we don't have so much opposition anymore. Was it, was it like a multi-story building or were the they? First... Go ahead. No, no, please. Oh, sorry. I thought that was Jeremy. Uh, the, so phase one is a multi-phase project. Phase one was all drive up units, but it still was laid out really well. We did things like had a beautiful stone and cedar sign out front that makes a big difference instead of, you know, just uh, you need fencing. So instead of just uh, aluminum fencing and we have it powder coated black, you know, nice office, that sort of thing. And then phase two is actually a multi-story building with a very nice modern commercial frontage, which will cover up what was already nice looking, but it's going to be very nice. And now for a commercial break. Have you ever seen that ING commercial that has a bunch of people walking around with random numbers hanging over their head? Like one has 700,581,000 floating over their head. Another has 2,348,000 over there. And then another person is carrying this number, big old number, $1,438,921. And this can be so confusing. What is the difference between one or the other? How can they be so different? And it begs this question, what is my number? What does it take for me to retire? Well, if you've been wondering that, my friends, I put together this little ebook that's about 20 pages long, so quick, easy to read, called What's My Number? And it walks you through enough scenarios to try and help you answer that question and give you some feedback and thoughts in terms of do we have enough money? You don't want to be that physician that has to go back to work after being retired. So if you want to grab this report, we would love to make it available to you. Please give us a call at 612-284-2409, and we'd be happy to email that What's My Number report to you. Again, give us a call, 612-284-2409, and we can send the What's My Number report to you. And now, back to the show. And what did you guys think, you know, when, when you rezoned it commercial, did you know you were going to do self-storage, or were you thinking of, hey, let's build an office building, or, you know, what were you considering other stuff besides just self-storage? 
No, we, that's, yeah, that was the use. It probably would have been a lot easier if we didn't know what we were doing because, you know, everyone was there to oppose storage. Um, they, they wouldn't have been opposing a Chick-fil-A. <laughs> I can tell you that much. <laughs> uh, and, and why self-storage? You know, why not an office building or uh, something else entirely different? Industrial, you know, Amazon warehouse or something. Well, so this area it's highly trafficked, but it's still rural. It's on a highway and people commute from our town to a metropolitan town. And so it wouldn't have made it's it's in a commercial corridor, but there's not a lot of commercial. It's more like farm and garden, things like that. So, you know, it's highest and best use was not the farm anymore that it used to be uh, because you don't want cows wandering out of the fence into a highway. That's a very big liability. Um, so storage is a good storage historically was supposed to be a temporary use of commercial land until you put something more permanent there. Mm -hmm. And it still can be seen that way in a lot of places, unless it's like a downtown several story building, obviously that's probably all it's ever going to be. But, you know, when you're trying to make use of some land and it's in the path of development, but it doesn't make enough sense to do a McDonald's or, you know, a retail building, office space, that sort of thing. Storage is a good temporary use that a lot of times just doesn't end up being temporary. Well, and, and walk us through the numbers. Um, is, I don't know which we use better to, to speak to this. Like, I can't even imagine the, the uh, rezoning costs and the blueprint costs and the actual, you know, putting up the building costs. You know, all, all of that is a big investment of time and money. Like, how much, you know, did, did that take uh, to do it? And then what, what were you hoping you know, to get out of it when you started on the journey? The So the rezoning in this area, that part wasn't expensive. I mean, we had to have a survey. So surveys aren't cheap and they don't get done quickly. Um, and I think it was like $300 for a rezoning. The biggest issue with the rezoning was the amount of time and just not knowing, you know, if the rezoning doesn't pass, then you're back to farm. And I'm not a farmer. So um, if, if somebody is ever looking to buy land to entitle it themselves, rezone it themselves, they definitely need to put a contingency in there that they're not going to close on it if they don't get the rezoning because that can be a huge, horrible thing to happen. But, um, you know, if you're doing drive up units, the uh, soft costs is what we call them for all of the entitlement, paperwork, architecture, that sort of thing is not nearly as much as if you're doing a multi-story building because you don't have electric in the units. You don't have plumbing. Um, yes, you do have to have lighting on the outside or you do need to have it, um, but you don't have HVAC. You don't have a sprinkler system, you know, so getting the plans together, it's not going to be cheap. But you, depending on the loan, you actually could build that into your loan so that you close on the loan and then you're paying for the uh, full-blown blueprints, whereas you just maybe had a con concept up to closing. Um, the SBA does a good loan for self-storage. They have an SBA 7A loan, which is for new construction. But um, 
Yeah. So it just depends on what type of project you're building on what the upfront cost and time is going to be. And for the more basic uh, non-climate, which is what we did for phase one. And so ours is uh, phase one was 31,000 square feet for us. And that cost, not including the cost of land, because, you know, we did the we bought the land with the house and did the rezoning cash out refi deal there. But the phase one project for us cost one point three million. Which is and that was a while back. So it doesn't cost that today anymore. It'd be much more expensive. Which I mean, I think about um, commercial buildings. I'm here in a seven story commercial building. I mean, I'm guessing this would probably go for millions, you know, of dollars, which $1.3 million is nothing to sneeze at by any means. Um, but, you know, at least it's for, for a lot of physicians and high income earners, you know, if you got into this and could do it yourself, it's typically from what I understand, 30% down if you're paying cash for, for um, something you didn't have a situation you guys did where you know you, you had an existing property. So like 1.3 million might be $400,000 down or something if someone bought a facility for that. Does that sound about right? It, yeah, if I was underwriting without experience, I would underwrite for 30% down. Um, for if you have experience and you have a relationship with your local banks, you can probably get a 20% down loan, but mm. The SBA makes a loan that's specifically for people who have never done self-storage and don't have a lot of capital. Um, and I won't go too deep in that because I know that's not who our audience you know, is, but the SBA does have a loan that's 10% down and they build in the interest reserves and they build in the operating capital to get you to stabilization. And the project has to show that it will stabilize in 24 months or less to qualify with them. Uh, and they make you get a feasibility study. And whether you're working with the SBA or you're working with Hometown Bank, I very, very highly recommend getting a feasibility study um, for your self-storage project because it's going to tell you everything that you don't know. And in this whole process, you know, just emotionally for you guys, were you, you know, I'm sure any construction, which you guys would be more familiar with it than I would by far, you know, were you still biting your nails at moments? You know, what, what was it like during this process where you didn't really have revenue coming in? You're taking this risk in, in building this whole new thing that's never been done for in this, this area, it sounds like. Yeah, that is scary. I mean, when I quit my job and I wasn't a high income earner, I worked at State Farm selling insurance. So I quit my job where I made maybe $40,000 in a good year and became the manager at that storage facility when we opened it. And I took a pay cut because the budget they made me set aside for a manager was like $26,000. And so I, that became me and I had to budget, you know, okay, we're going to have to get rid of some expenses because now I'm the manager and I showed up and I answered the phone and I leased the units and I'm, me and my kids mopped the units and cleaned the site together. And I did that until I realized that we really don't need a full-time person here. Mm. And when, what point in the process did you realize that? Like, was this a year ago, two years ago, three years ago? Like, it sounds like it was built in 2018 was the year you actually mm -hmm. opened it. It was pretty fast. It was within probably six months that 
you know, at first I, I, you know, treated it like my regular 40 hour week job where I showed up in the morning and stayed there, you know, until five o'clock in the afternoon. Um, but in storage, you don't get a lot of traffic because people don't come in and out regularly. You do have some commercial tenants, um, but uh, people come in and put their stuff in the unit and they leave it there until they're ready to move it out, typically. Um, so you might see maybe one or two people a week that really see you face to face that want to come in and pay cash, which we don't, we don't take cash, but there are only people that try to pay cash or that like to come in and pay with a check. But, um, and you might get for our facility, we would get maybe two or three calls a day. And so I realized that I could just put appointments only on the office door and go, that's when I got my real estate license. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to replace my, the income I need with that instead. And I'll just take the phone calls. And so I did that for a while. And then eventually whenever the facility stabilized and um, I didn't have to put in the sweat, sweat equity anymore, we hired a management company. And so now it's very high level where we just get reports. And Jeremy, what was it like for you seeing your wife go through this and going through this whole process to uh, get to this, this point where you guys are at now? Uh, it was a, it was a really good learning process at the time when we started our first, well, when we started this facility, um, I just had a residential contractor license and I was still, you know, flipping, I was doing our house flips and building houses and things like that. And she was taking care of this business. Well, the biggest lesson for us, or I guess the biggest, the biggest gain for me personally was um, after having to deal with another contractor and having some issues out of them, kind of forced me to go get my commercial license. And uh, so that was a good learning experience for me. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, seeing uh, my wife pull off the investment was very gratifying. Um and nice, you know, it was very nice to know that that um, it was a lot more hands-free than we imagined at first. So we had, when once we got stabilized in the uh, self-storage facility, we kind of looked at the 224 units we had, and then we looked at the handful of residential rentals, you know, house, single-family home rentals that we had, realized you know that these handful of people are calling us and causing way more work for us than these 224 people and that's when it really clicked that you know, it's a much better investment for us um, because it is less work you know and we can it'll allow us to get uh, more time for ourselves, which is ultimately what it's all about anyway Absolutely. and also kind of open our eyes to the commercial aspect in whole like now my view is man I, it's much better to have a commercial asset that i can control the value of based on the noi and the net income than having a single family house that my only value really is based on whatever the neighbor decides to do with their house you know and so that was an eye-opener for me personally of and I, I, I like being in a lot more control of my asset and also like you know, a lot less work to maintain it. And so it really opened up that 
avenue. And then now, you know, I've got a commercial license and we can build it ourselves. And I've seen the process through someone else building it. So, uh, yeah, it was just, it was a beautiful growth experience all the way around. Well, everything I've ever heard, I'm guessing because you guys are expanding and potentially even doing another facility beyond that, that you, you have been enjoying it and um, uh, COVID treated you well, relatively. Um, can you speak to that? Like, are you 100% least out of this thing right now? You know, and uh, since it sounds like you are expanding, you know, what, what's the, the difference between your expansion versus what you already have? So with storage, you never want to be 100% full because that you should be raising rates. So the cycle is, you know, every 70 months, you know, the rates get raised and people move out, people move in. So if you're 100% full and a lot of facilities are because it, it can just get too easy where it's like, well, I'm getting, you know, mailbox money. So, you know, I don't want to make my, you know, customers angry, but you should be raising rates to keep up with street rates. People are moving in, people are moving out. Um, but, you know, as demand increases, you know, because self-storage is goes along with housing. So as people build housing and people move into an area, you're going to need more storage. So as you keep an eye on that and you're filling up and your facility is stabilized and with self-storage, we consider stabilized somewhere between 85 and 90 percent occupancy, not 100 percent, 85 to 95 percent occupancy is stabilized. Um, but then you do another analysis, another feasibility study and determine, all right, well, how many more people are here? How much more square footage should we build? You know, I don't remember what the Jeremy might know the square footage that we're adding is, but it's another 300 units plus about 70 parking spaces because parking is a great way to uh, generate income to use additional land. So the way we did it with phase one was it, we built out some storage and then we went ahead and did the excavation and a gravel pad for phase two. And we use that for parking. And so now we're doing that again for phase three, uh, which it will take a couple of years to stabilize phase two because we are adding so many units. So it may be another five or 10 years before we put any buildings on the phase three, which will be the, you know, 70 parking spaces. Awesome. Very cool. Um, and everything I've ever heard about this space is, you know, it really just exploded in COVID just because of people moving and, and uh, people moving all over the country, moving from cities to rural and, and uh, relocating all over the place and new construction going on, obviously. So people need a place to store stuff. Have you found that to be true as well? well yeah, self-storage is a you know transitory industry where you need storage because you're moving or because you're in a situation like maybe somebody passed away and you know you've got to put away some heirlooms or going through a divorce. Um, so some people will call it like the transition and trauma business because that's really what storage is. A lot of people that aren't in storage think it's just for hoarders, you know, people that have too much junk, but really the need and the primary customer is going to be someone in transition or going through a traumatic situation. And so with, so yes, people are moving, that's going to have an impact on it, but also 
what was unexpected in COVID is that storage did very well. So while we had all these moratoriums on multifamily and, you know, obviously restaurants did terribly, any kind of entertainment industry did terribly, storage still did quite well. It was very resilient during that time. We were very careful about any evictions or anything like that, because, you know, as a business owner, you just have to be uh, aware and understanding of the situation. But as a whole in the industry, it did very well. And so what has happened since COVID is the REITs have been buying up as much as they can. And when they get involved and when they make that their primary asset, that's going to drive the cap rates down. It's going to drive our valuation up. And then now everybody's paying attention. And so self-storage has seen a very big increase in attention since COVID because it did well during COVID. Well, and I've, I've come to the conclusion that I, I think it, it may end up being a blessing with interest rates actually moving up because it might hopefully bring prices down a little bit, right? Some of these REITs have had such cheap money. Well, yes, it will. You know, when interest rates go up, cap rates go up. So yes, prices are going to go down, but valuations are also going to go down. So, you know, it, it just, it's kind of relative interest rates and cap rates. So it's like, you can't ever really just wait for interest rates or whatever. Like if you want to get in storage, you just got to figure it out and get in there. Got it. Jeremy, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I agree with uh, what Jennifer said. I'll also add, you know, a lot of a lot of opinions that I have are going to be based on different scenarios. So it would all depend on what the person was trying to achieve. You know, if they had a a boatload of cash and needed somewhere to place it, obviously interest rates don't affect that, or you know, don't aren't even a player in that because they have cash now. If they have no cash and they're trying to get into their first deal and, um, you know, they're wanting to buy a facility at the height of the market, you know, maybe that's not such a great idea. Maybe it's a better play for them, like you said, to wait and watch the valuations come down a little bit if they don't have the ability to develop or build from the ground up, you know, and they, and maybe they don't have the ability to find good deals. Um, like for a seasoned investor, somebody who's kind of, you know, new to self-storage, but not new to the game of investing and buying properties in general, like Jennifer said, there's always deals out there everywhere. You just got to know how to market and you got to know how to find them and you got to know how to beat on doors and you got to know how to find, you know, the owners that are ready to retire and they just want to pass their business on to somebody they know, like, and trust and, you're that person, then they might not necessarily be worried about selling it for the highest price possible. They might just be more concerned about passing on their legacy to somebody they know is going to handle the business like they did. You know what I mean? So I guess there's so many different variables to even just one asset class and how you can best position yourself in whatever environment you're in is where I kind of go back to, it just depends on the scenario, you know? Got it. No, that's great. Great advice. And, and as, as we wrap up this, this podcast, guys, I'm curious with your hands in so many different pots and and doing different things. This podcast, of course, is called the freedom formula for physicians. 
And I'm always curious to ask guests, you know, how would you define financial freedom for you? Like, how do you know when you personally have become financially free? What does that look like for you guys? For me, it's control of my time. You know, when I get to choose what I do every day, that's because I have control of my finances. And so that, that's what it means to me. And for me, for me, uh, very similar to my wife, you know, financial freedom to me is having the freedom to do whatever I want and enjoying what I do when that produces a financial gain for me. I mean, that's a huge freedom. Like I love construction. I love design. I love, uh, the investing world and the challenges that we get to take each day. And I love the ability to, you know, basically do whatever we want to do, whatever we want to do it um, because we have so much control over what we're doing. So to me, that's financial freedom. And uh, I just love what we do. So it doesn't even feel like work. Perfect. I love it. And as, as we, we wrap up this podcast, do you guys have any other closing thoughts you want to share with someone that's, that's interested in doing this kind of thing? Um, you know, I think we covered a lot of different things and, you know, I'm really glad that Jeremy brought up the point of passively investing in syndications or other people's deals, because I think for a lot of physicians and any kind of specialist professionals that are high income earners, you know, the key issue is, okay, you know, I'm making, uh, you know, I have disposable income, I have extra income, you know, how do I preserve it and how do I grow it? And so when you're in that situation, your, your focus is on, uh, you know, asset management and growth. And so you need to learn about, you know, different ways to, you know, different tax vehicles, different investments. And it's not just storage. That's a great idea because it's resilient, but like, how can you put your money into a retirement account so that it's growing tax-free and then self-direct it into storage? Now that's when you're winning, you know? So, and how you learn about stuff like that is listening to these podcasts, you know, talking to people like Dave who, you know, know all about different types of ways to preserve your, um, your assets and being in groups of people like masterminds or, you know, local real estate associations, that sort of thing, networking, being around the people that know what you want to know. Great advice. And do you guys have any resources or things you want to um, leave us with where people could look you up and find you? Yeah, so we've got a, um, a couple of things. We have a website. It's, what is it, Jennifer? Rubixinvestors.com? Yes. Okay, we'll make sure I got that right. But yeah, Rubix, R-U-B-I-X, investors.com. And people can read a little bit more about us. Um, they can actually set up times to meet with us or ask questions or whatever they want to do um, in the investment world. We also have a mastermind group called collab and uh, you can read up a little bit more about that at collab.events c-o-l-l-a-b dot events and uh, in that group as Jennifer mentioned it's good to get around other people like-minded people that are you know they might not necessarily 
be in the same asset class as you, but they they might have the same entrepreneurial spirit or investing spirit as you do. And, uh, you know, being surrounded by the same like-minded people really seems to propel us forward a lot quicker uh, because we have people that we can bounce ideas off of. A lot of people don't understand what we're talking about or don't want to hear about it because they just, they're fine with the situation that they're already in. But, you know, people that are looking to do investing and grow their net worth and, you know, start businesses and different things like that. They've got to surround themselves uh, with other people that are doing that. And that's what our mastermind group is about. And then as far as, you know, my two cents or advice on if I was just starting in, in one of those positions of the physicians of what I would do first, honestly, what I would do first is I would, I would really try to dig deep and figure out what my vision is and what my plan would be. And then try to reverse engineer from there, you know, just figure out what I'm trying to do. Am I trying to go into investing full time or am I trying to find passive income? And am, am I just trying to make an extra income per month or is this a net worth game? Like what is my strategy? And then work backwards work backwards from there and that's those are the things that we talk about in our mastermind groups too to help each other out with that's kind of my two cents on that i love it no great great advice everyone and some good thoughts for all of us to to chew on and and certainly some great resources that you guys mentioned so feel free to check those out and i think that wraps up the episode for today thank you guys so much for being with us yeah thanks for having us dave Yeah, thanks, sir. All right. For the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, this is Dave Denniston. Remember, my friends, remember to slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Thank you, my friends, so much for listening to the last podcast. I am pleased to announce that I am now a completely independent financial advisor, where to the point now, I can really integrate my financial planning practice with this podcast. If you might be looking for help, if you have found any of our information here interesting or relevant, and you're looking for a second opinion, I'm making myself available for 30 minute strategy sessions. And if you want to arrange a time to meet with me to discuss your situation and see if we might be a good fit for one another, I'd like you to call our office and speak with Kyla. Our phone number is 612-284-2409. Again, that's 612-284-2409. And I look forward to helping you with your financial situation. And now for some lovely legal disclosures required by our lawyer friends. Investment advice is only offered in jurisdictions where Centurion Financial Strategies, LLC, Centurion is appropriately registered or exempt from registration. Our Form ADV Part 2 brochure can be obtained free of charge at advisorinfo.sec.gov by searching for our firm name or its unique CRD number, which is 316-454. This podcast is not a solicitation to provide advisory services in any jurisdiction in which we are not appropriately registered or excluded. The information, statements, and opinions contained in this podcast have been obtained from or are based on information obtained from sources which we believe to be reliable, but we do not warrant or guarantee the timeliness or accuracy of such information. 
This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as personalized investment, tax, or legal advice. Opinions expressed by any guest are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the firm's views. You should carefully consider your own financial circumstances and needs prior to making any investment in securities or purchasing any insurance products. As always, past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing in securities or really anything else involves the risk of loss. If by some chance in this particular podcast I mentioned insurance products, insurance products are backed by the financial strength and claims paying ability of the issuing insurance company. They may be subject to restrictions, limitations, and early withdrawal fees, which vary by issue. You should always consider the charges, risks, expenses, and investment objective of any insurance products before entering a contract. And that, my friends, wraps it up. Wish you all the best. Feel free to contact us with any info at www.daviddeniston.com. Thank you so much and have a good one. Bye-bye.